What's up, guys? This is Mike. This is Dave, and you're listening to the Mike and Dave Podcast. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Mike and Dave Podcast. This is Dave, and this is episode 43. And I gotta gotta say, I'm very excited about this episode. We're coming off of Rivalry Weekend in college football. What a weekend that was. We'll get onto that a little bit later in the show. But before that, we've got top five small forwards of all time, which we're, of course, really looking forward to, a continuation of the series that we've been doing, starting with centers and working our way down to the point guards. This is the third uh, rendition of that. And then obviously before that, we're going to kick it off with off the top, like we always do. It's Mike's turn to come up with the prompt. What do you got this time? Well, here's the thing. The, The World Cup is going on, as you may have heard, you know. In Qatar, not nearby. And that's soccer, which means I know basically nothing about it. Uh, every four years or so, I emerge from my football and basketball like rock cave thing and go, yeah, I'll watch a game or two here or there. Rah, rah, England, you know, the whole, whole nine. Uh, so already coming out unpatriotic in this episode um so i have some questions not about the rules of soccer those i'll probably never understand uh but dave you watch way more soccer than i do and know way more about it than i do and i'm sure a lot of people listening unlike me will be rooting for the good old u.s right well i want to know do we have a chance who are the big players here? I guess, in a nutshell, the off the top I'm asking you is like, give me like the idiot's guide to 2022 World Cup. All right, wait, are you asking if the United States has a chance to win the whole thing? That'd be a good place to start. And if not, why, why not? Aside from like soccer being a more like global sport. Yeah, here in America, we like to create our own sports that we're really good at rather than actually be super competitive in the one that everyone else cares about, uh, which is very on brand for us, I must say. Uh, to answer your question, no, we don't. we do not have a shot of winning the whole thing. The reason for that being we don't have as talented of players, we don't have as good of a coach, and... Uh, history shows we're probably going to get knocked out in either this round or the next round. I will say, as of today, Tuesday, the day we're recording this, uh, the U.S. did manage to beat Iran and get out of the group uh, behind England in second place, which means they're going to face the Netherlands in the next round, in the round of 16. So that'll be an interesting matchup. Uh, not a great one for us. The Netherlands have a lot of very, very quality players who play in the top leagues in Europe. Um, we have players who play in the top leagues of Europe as well, just for like worse teams, and they aren't as good. It's basically how I can describe it. So like, what I will say, though, is that after 2018, where uh, the U.S., was not able to actually qualify for the World Cup in the first place. That was obviously an embarrassment. The fact that we were able to come out and qualify this time 
and be able to get out of the group was a very good sign, especially with the fact that we have a very, very young team. Uh, One of our center backs is like 35 and all the rest of them are like 20 to like 25 or so. Um, It's a very, very young group, a group who arguably is like the most talented uh, technically speaking and like most with the most potential that the U S has had. Um, and I think it shows the development that U S soccer is, uh, has been seeing over the last few years really over the last 10 years, maybe or so. Um, and this, with this new group of players coming up. So it is exciting. Um, and obviously like us getting out of the group is kind of, that's the main goal of the teams who aren't one of the favorites, you know, like the Brazil, Argentina, France, like those countries who are traditional soccer powers. Uh, so we did that. We checked that box. Now it's kind of like if we win another game, then that's amazing. If we don't, then like it's understandable. So I will say it's, it is kind of fun to, to get into it and, and cheer for the, for the U S and especially on, in a tournament that's just so such a big deal to so many people. Like I think I saw something where like the world cup is expected to have like three and a half billion total viewers or something for this world cup. Uh, like obviously over the course of all the games and stuff, which is absolutely mind blowing considering if you, if you've been listening to the podcast, you know what the population of the world is now. Um, <laughs> That was like a couple episodes ago in my fun, my fun facts, but um, it's basically like a little under half of the, like the world's total population is going to watch this thing, which just shows the enormity of it. So it is cool that we're in the final 16 teams. Um, so that's a good thing. But in terms of being excited about winning, yeah, that that's <laughs> not going to happen for a while. But we're on the right track. So if you're listening to this saying, oh, the USA has, or, you know, U.S. soccer has a chance, Dave is here to tell you, you don't. Now. Hey, what I'm here to do is I'm here to set your expectations at the right level. (laughs) So either we lose and that meets the expectations or we win and that exceeds the expectations. Now, what I also heard was a bunch of potential with our center bags because they're all young. So, what I'm hearing is 2026 USA favorites. Well, technically, I said that one of our center backs was like 35 (laughs) and all the rest of the team was young, basically. But um, what I will say is with the trajectory that we're going into... um, it's not impossible that we could kind of gain more of a, um, I guess, global recognition or like a better reputation in terms of soccer and like how, how we're viewed among like, you know, stacking up to some of the better teams. And this tournament is a really good opportunity to show that we're making really good strides towards that. And if, if we beat the Netherlands, uh, which is again one of those traditional football powers, like or soccer powers, whatever you want to call it. Um, then that is a really good sign. 
Well, hey, we'll take really good signs around here. Uh, in fact, you know, it's I'm not going to ask for anything more. <laughs> you already know. Um, now, last question. I said I was going to root for England. I mean, for those of you listening, I am half English. So, like, just to, like, put a little defense out there, like, this isn't just like, oh, I picked a random country and was like, oh, yeah, go them or whatever. Um, so we talked about how U.S. doesn't have a chance. Or, you know, you talk, I listen. Uh, what should my expectations be as someone that's rooting for England in all of this? Well, I think England certainly has a better opportunity to go all the way. Uh, obviously, they won the the same group group b that the u.s was in uh to be fair the u.s did draw with england which was a really good result for the u.s not as so much for england um in terms of how excited should you be i mean england has been on a a run of pretty good uh results in international competitions and the euros i believe they lost in the finals uh i think that was last year or two years ago yeah, it was last year because it should have been in 2020, but then they had to play it in 2021 instead. And then the World Cup um, in 2018, I believe they made it to the semifinals and either came yeah. in third or fourth. So, like, for, I mean, England it's is really a, a traditional soccer power right but like they hadn't they've only won one world cup and that was in like 66 or something so it's it's been a long time they have very very good players like there's no doubting that i would say that they aren't in the they aren't the favorites though at all like i would say they're probably more in like the getting knocked out in the quarterfinals type of team than making it to the semifinals type of team, but it really just depends. Like they have all the talent to win. It's just, can they kind of get over the hump that England has been trying to get over since 1966? But definitely they have a better shot than the U S does. I'll say that. Okay. Well, I feel like that's definitely helpful in terms of like expectations and, and actually like looking at the results of the games and just kind of knowing, Oh, is this, was this a big deal or not? You know, like if, uh, I don't know, I feel like it's easy to, okay, this might just be showing my ignorance about soccer, but like to look at USA and Netherlands and go like, oh, well, the United States is a much bigger player in like everything but soccer. And like in, in everyday life, we kind of dismiss the Netherlands and therefore like to look at that on a box score is like, oh, well, we beat the Netherlands. We probably were supposed to, right? But then, like, when you think about it more in terms of, like, their reputation as soccer teams or as soccer powers, as you said, like, I think it's better to understand that dynamic. So I appreciate that. Um, but cool. So there you go. There's every, uh for everyone listening, there's your dose of World Cup. I was going to say discussion. I think that's a a stretch um uh, world cup information uh featuring not me uh when we come back i will be more heavily featured in a segment that i know more than 
two names about, and that will be the top five uh, small forwards in NBA history. So stick around. All right, we are back, and it is time to get into our uh, each of us naming our top five small forwards of all time. Like I said at the beginning of the show, this is a continuation of a series that we started back in episode 35, where we named our top five centers of all time. And then episode 40, we named our top five power forwards. And now here in episode 43, we're doing our top five small forwards. Um, I think uh, the, for the centers, both Mike and I had the same five names, just with two names switched around from one to five. Um, and for the power forwards, we had four of the same players and then a different player at number five. So I'm very curious to see what's going to happen with this small forwards list. I think as we go higher, uh, or I as we go from centers to point guards, I think it gets trickier, um, which is, it kind of makes it more fun for us. And just as a reminder, we don't know each other's top fives. We came up with these individually. Uh, so I'm looking forward to see what Mike has come up with. All right. So these ones are interesting to me just because, you know, a lot of most of our top fives are more like who who do we like the most, what jerseys we like the most, etc. But here we have to focus on like who's actually like the best. Right. So number five. Uh, on my top five small forwards of all time. So I kind of went back and forth on this. Um, and later on, I'll say who the other was that I was back and forth on, just to not spoil a name in case he's on your list. But at number five, I have Scottie Pippen. So first of all, sort of the point forward before that was really a thing. I feel like that's part of the forgotten part of Scotty's game, and that's kind of why I wanted to say that first. Um, this is a guy that averaged around like 16 points, five assists, six and a half boards a game, so very well-rounded. Obviously, the points doesn't really jump off at you, right? I feel like when we we're naming our, uh, when we we're going through our centers, for example, the stats for like all five of them were like, oh my gosh, that's insane. Um, but then here I come, 16 points a game. What? It's Scotty Pippen, though. He's the best wing defender of all time. And by that, I don't necessarily mean one-on-one -on -one defender, although he's one of the greats there as well, but I'm talking about as a team defender, like being the defensive anchor, not from the, uh, not from down low, but on the perimeter, sort of captaining that defense. Also the best Robin to ever exist. Now, part of my, hesitance to put Scottie Pippen at five was that we never saw him be the guy, uh, at least on a championship winning team. Like we saw him be the guy in Portland and it didn't work or at least try to be the guy. And we saw that happen in the absence of Michael Jordan on the bulls. Didn't work out, but not every player is made to be the, the guy on a championship winning team still though Pippen cracks my top five because best defender ever in addition to being sort of the prototypical point forward and being that uh 
a six-time champion, seven-time All-NBA, seven-time All-Star, eight-time All-Defense, first team. Like, I'm giving respect to the specialist in that regard. For sure. I think that's that definitely makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we both really value defense a lot. So, because it really is half the game. So, um, so yeah, so I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I did not have Scottie Pippen at number five. I think this is probably going to be fairly controversial uh, for potentially for you, Mike, but also for any of our listeners. I'm putting Kevin Durant at number five. Uh, So obviously like KD is one of the best scorers, like just naturally talented scorers that we've seen in basketball history. I'll say that. Um, I think, I mean, we just look at his stats, like averaging 27 points a game, seven rebounds, four assists. Those are really, really solid numbers, of course. Um, and a lot of this is like, I think Kevin Durant will, would go up on this list by the time he's done playing. I think when I was looking at some of these other guys, the cumulative stats and the cumulative awards stood out to me. Uh, And to be honest with you, you were talking about uh, Scottie Pippen never being able to be the guy on a championship team. Well, Kevin Durant has, has not been that either. Uh, And I think a lot of people think of him as the alpha, but he's never been the alpha and won the whole thing. And I think there's something to be said for that. I mean, I don't want this to all be like, here are reasons why he shouldn't be higher because he's still in the top five, right? Like this is still one of, like I said, one of the most naturally gifted players and scorers um, of all time. I will say defensively is where he kind of, when he's, when he's focused, he can be a very, it can be an impact defender, but that is not something that has ever been his calling card. And I think, uh, all of the guys who I have above him on my list are probably better defenders than him. Um, was has not ever been named to an all defensive team. Um, now he has been named MVP once, twelve time All Star, ten uh, time All NBA team recipient, six times for for the first team, four for the second team. He won Rookie of the Year. He's been the scoring champion four times, like. Which is interesting. I didn't realize this. He has not done that since 2014. So, as much as we say, like, oh, KD's like one of the best game players in the game today, like he's potentially the best scorer in in the league, he hasn't actually led the league in points in eight years. So there is something to be said for that. But overall, I mean, there's a lot to be said about Kevin Durant as a teammate um, and Kevin Durant as. Uh, like I was mentioning before, a guy who's potentially a leader um, or lack thereof. And I think those intangibles are also very important when it comes to ranking these players uh, because all of those things, it's not just the stats or it's not just being able to score that makes you a basketball player. It's a lot of the other things too. It's the IQ, it's the intangibles, it's the defense. And so 
that's why I have him at number five, which is still like good, but I think it's probably lower than a lot of other people would have. I will say, spoiler alert, Kevin Durant is on my list, which automatically means I'm higher than him. I'm higher on him than you are. And I'll also say, I'm not going to talk much about him right now because he's actually not number four for me. So here's some variance. Uh, But I will just say, I have been a known, (laughs) known, a a known hater of Kevin Durant um, for the, uh, the mental fortitude or let's say lack thereof, uh, softest move in nba history by a superstar going to the warriors uh leaving there for a new star-studded team yada yada um but i'll talk about a little bit more about him later on uh at number four i have julius irving dr j uh one one thing to say about dr j is this is another like well i talked about scotty pippen being transcendent in the sense that you know, he was like one of the first point forwards. Well, Dr. J was one of the first like big athletic, um, like transition threat type of players. Um, before which we saw a lot of layups, um, a lot of like nice little finger roll finishes. Uh, Dr. J was one of the first guys that was coming down, not as like a center necessarily, but coming down and he was like, I'm going to slam it. You know, this is, what I'm here to do. Um, and I think now is a good time to bring up the three criteria that I look at when I have done these top five lists. And I brought this up. I, I know in episode 35, maybe in episode 40, um, I'm looking at a combination of individual stats slash accolades, team success, or like contribution to team success and the eye test. And I bring up the eye test now with Dr. J because this guy started playing in the 70s and the further back in history we go, the more the eye test starts to like show or maybe not show. That might come up again later. Who knows? Um, but Dr. J passes that with flying colors um, and that's someone that was playing almost 50 years ago. And I think that says something about the transcendent type of player that he was. He averaged over 20 points a game every year until he turned 35. Um, now he has one championship, one MVP, five all NBA first team, 11 all-star, but it's important to remember that he didn't join the NBA until age 26. He was playing in the ABA until then. Uh, so he'd be higher or he'd have more of a lot of those had he just had he been able to just play NBA basketball his whole career instead of bothering with the ABA. Uh, so I think that's worth mentioning as well, but Dr. J, get it done on both ends, uh, an efficient score. And that's really like without a jumper uh, for the most part. Um, how well he'd survive in today's NBA, I don't really know necessarily, just just based on how we've become more of a three-point shooting league. But the physical traits are all the way there. Oh, 100%. Physical traits, definitely. I think probably one of the more athletic players we've seen uh, in the NBA over the course of its history. Uh, Dr. J was also my number four small forward. Um, I think you, you touched on a lot of the things Um, I was talking about 
in the power forwards about Dirk and kind of his impact on international players on uh big big men shooting uh and how that I was factoring that into where I was ranking him I think Dr. J is one of those guys where like dunking is like probably the most exciting thing and arguably the most fun thing that we have in basketball and he's the first one who really popularized it and modernized it and if you you talk to any of uh you know players now especially dunkers they they say like dr j is like the guy i mean you talk to like dominic wilkins like dr j was like his inspiration um and so there's definitely a lot to be said for that not to mention the fact that yes he he was an amazing player if you combine his stats from the aba and the nba then he won four mvps he won three championships including two playoff mvps um and like nine first team all nba slash all aba like and they're you know it's not his fault that he got drafted um or that he, that he went into the aba first so like yeah i think he de- he's definitely deserving to be in the top five i had him at number four um and even when you look at like career statistics for like Durant versus Julius Irving, like Durant's averaging like three more points a game, like one and a half fewer rebounds and basically the same amount of assists per game. And so their difference is not really there for the most part, but the stats are. And so I, I think if KD wins another championship or two, you know, a, a couple more scoring titles, especially another MVP right now, he only has he only has the one MVP award, then maybe he, he jumps Dr. J, but that's why for me, Dr. J is a, is a step above for him, uh, a step above him right now. Well, then I guess I have to explain why I have Kevin Durant at three, right? Um, let me make the case. Uh, basically he's a video game character. I mean, uh, we got a seven footer that can do everything. I mean, like you mentioned the, the defense earlier and yeah, like I would take Dr. J's defense over KD's certainly Scotty Pippen's, uh, but it's not that KD is a bad defender. Um, in fact, like most of the advanced metrics of the past, like, 10 seasons have shown that he is in fact like an above average uh, defender in the league. Um, now who do I trust more as a scorer? Katie, <laughs> like we, I mentioned uh, Dr. J with the eye test with driving to the basket and everything. Um, KD is not doing that as explosively, but he can still get to the rim and finish around the rim. But what he can do that Dr. J can't, is shoot lights out. This is a, a 50, 40, 90 type of shooter at seven foot. Um, all the skills are there. Yeah. Four time scoring champion. You mentioned that 32 points a game in 2014. And what I'll say about the, um, you know, not having led the league in scoring since then is like, if we look at what happened or what 
the league has looked like since then. Like that's when he decided to get super soft, right? And like uh jump ship to Golden State or like this around that time. Um since then Russell Westbrook has led it. Uh we know the uh mm. how's the best way to say this? Russell Westbrook's gonna get his stats, especially if left to his own devices. We had a year where Steph Curry went ballistic, then we had three straight years of James Harden. Um where he was really the only scorer in Houston. Um, then we had Steph Curry. Uh, that was after, or that was when KD is no longer playing in Golden State. Steph Curry is the only player there doing anything. Um, sorry, this is two years ago, so uh, KD is in Brooklyn at this point. And then last year it was Joel Embiid. Um, and what we noticed with pretty much all these situations is KD is now on teams with other superstars, and these other guys are basically doing it by themselves relatively speaking so i would just say like not that you're saying this but like yes durant hasn't led the league in scoring since 2014 he hasn't been on a team on which he needed to really um and even in those seasons he's been scoring a lot it's just the guys that have led the league in scoring have needed to ball the heck out in order to have a chance in these games now i will say i do hold that against him though uh that's like he put himself on those teams and that's soft. Um, the reality is he's already 18th in, in league history and scoring. He's the only player in the top 20 that hasn't played a thousand games yet. I'm projecting here, but he's going to go what uh, he's going to get up even higher. Um, I said that like, I don't know how well Dr. J would fit in today's game. Just, you know, based on that lack of a jumper. And the reality is for KD, you could put him in pretty much any league or on any team in, in NBA history. He'd be purely additive. Now, who I have at number three, Mike, I'm sure that you were wondering who I could have here that would be above the guys we've already mentioned. Um, and I'm going to go for John Havlicek at number three. Um, a big piece of this obviously, is the fact that he won eight NBA championships with the Celtics on those a lot of those great Celtics teams. Um, 8-0 in the finals. He averaged 21 points a game, 6.3 rebounds, 4.8 assists. So you talk about Scottie Pippen being, you know, a point forward type, but like Havlicek was doing that before, like 30, 20, 30 years before Scottie Pippen was. He was a very, very well-rounded player. Uh, Bill Russell said that he was the most well-rounded player that he ever saw. Um, And that goes into the fact that he also ate all defensive team selections, five first-team, three-second-team, 11 All-NBA selections, 13-time All-Star in 16 years. Um, He also won a Finals MVP in 1974. Um, Very well, like, very known for his defense. Um, They didn't start tracking steals and blocks until like the last few years of his career. So we don't actually know. Um, But there were like, he had the reputation of being a very, very strong defensive player for them and a very key piece to those Celtics teams that were um, so successful in the sixties and seventies. And he was a a major, major part of that. Um, And, the only, te- the only two players who have more championships than him are 
his former teammates, Bill Russell and Sam Jones, who won 11 and 10 respectively. Um, so I think he probably gets goes under the radar a bit because he had like superstar teammates and everything. But honestly, I was like Pippen was was my number six option. And I was thinking about it, and the more I was co- kind of comparing stats and looking into it, I was like, you know, I feel like Havlicek was just a better, like, not as good of a defender as Pippen, but a better, like, version of him in a lot of ways. Um, and the counting stats were just a little bit better. And then when, then I started comparing it to KD and to um, Dr. J, and I was just like, man, those championships are hard to ignore as well as the fact that he still had really good counting stats, um, that he had the defense like over Dr. J and and KD. And so he ended up at number three for me, which is probably pretty high on like if you were making your list at home uh, compared to potentially where you would put him. But I just have a lot of respect for him. And after, um, you know, reading, reading about it and kind of comparing, he ended up at number three for me. So I don't, have Havlicek on my list. Um, but I'm glad that you mentioned him because this is why I waited when I was talking about my number five. I was like, eh, I won't say the other name in case you mention him later. Here it is. Um, so I'm glad that you're giving Havlicek the respect. Um, an often forgotten NBA great. Um, yeah, he didn't make my list. Maybe I'm Maybe I'm disrespectful. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, all of the positives that you listed with him, 100%. Yeah. Um, I mean, that Celtics team was legendary with him, Bill Russell, Sam Jones, and Bob Cousy, my man. Uh, but yeah, he just didn't make the list for me, but no hate on him. Um, now at number two, I'm going to go with a different Celtic. This is where... Things get obvious, right? Um, Larry Bird. Um, I, was, I was about to say, wait, LeBron didn't play for the Celtics. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I should have done? Like, when we, at the very beginning, at number five, I should have been like, all right, at number five, I got LeBron. And then just like see, oh, wow. Like, like we go back and look at the the data on this episode. Like, oh, we lost like 60% of our <laughs> listeners. Oh. <at> the- <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, but no, at number two, it's Larry Bird. Um, If you're a young kiddo out there, not well-schooled in uh, NBA history, first of all, I'm probably a few minutes too late because if you need to look up on Larry Bird, then you certainly got lost when Dave was talking about John Havlicek. But go look up Larry Bird. Uh, I don't know how some people still just like kind of write him off as just a shooter when that's just flagrantly unfair. Um, The reality is like he and Magic Johnson basically traded off being the best player in basketball and Magic Johnson doesn't really get any disrespect like that. Um, Larry Bird, three championships, two finals MVPs, and he was robbed of uh, one of those. His second year in the league, they win the championship, and they give the finals MVP to Cedric Maxwell, who scored two more points 
than him, uh, than Larry Bird, but was otherwise outshined in like every category. For example, Larry Bird averaged like 15 points a game, also 15 rebounds a game. He Larry Bird basically got half the rebounds of the final series, uh, half of the Celtics rebounds. It was something like 16 shy of half for the entire series. Um, not to mention more assists than Maxwell, more steals, more blocks, better shoot. Like, But they just gave it to Cedric Maxwell. So whatever. It should be three. Um, three MVPs. And I just have to say, like, LeBron has more rings than Larry Bird. Um, I mean, as does Havlicek. Uh Holy shit. The competition, man. Like, um, you go to you go to who won the championship, uh, basically every year of uh Larry Bird's career. And you got um his first year in the league, Magic Johnson wins. Then Larry Bird wins his second year. Oh, there's Magic again. Alright, Moses Malone and those crazy 76ers. Okay. Uh, Larry Bird wins again. Up oh, then it's Kareem and Magic again. Up oh, okay, Larry Bird gets his third ring. Oh, Magic and Kareem. Magic and Kareem. Oh, here come the bad boy Pistons. And then uh and then Larry Bird retires after the second year of the first Jordan three peat. Like, which of those teams was he like really supposed to beat? Like like was Moses Malone not supposed to get one? Like was he supposed to be interrupting more of the Lakers' dominance when they had two probably top five players in NBA history on that same team? Like, was he supposed to out-physical the most physical basketball team in history, or was he supposed to beat the GOAT and Robin? Like, I don't... Like, the fact that he got three rings and all of that is saying something alone. So, get that out of the way. Um... And just to further dismiss the whole, like, oh, he's he's a shooter, you know. Um, he's number 36 in scoring all time. Uh, his, relatively speaking, his career wasn't all that long, like, compared to what we saw out of, like, a lot of other guys that climbed up on the list. He's one of only two players in the top 40 with under 900 games played. So, that, you know, most guys in that list by now have, like, a 1,000-plus games played. Um, but he's also number 44 in assists and number 55 in rebounds as some like a dude that you know gets a bad rap for like the awkward looking unathletic looking white dude from indiana (laughs) um not to mention phenomenal defender and playmaker like and you want to talk about eye test watch his watch his highlight reel and don't even pay attention to the shooting. Just watch the passing. My goodness. Yeah, he was definitely, I mean, he's number two on my list as well. No surprises there. Um, he's one of those guys who really excelled in every area, um, despite maybe not being the most athletic guy. And that's definitely something to be said. And I think a lot of it too was like, like him using his brain over his body. Like, he was definitely known as being a really good team defender and like maybe like one-on-one he would, he would struggle occasionally against really athletic guys, but as a help defender, as a team defender, I mean, he's, he still made three all defensive second teams in his career. Um, 
also one of the more clutch players in NBA history as well. Um, and I don't even know if you mentioned this, but the the three-peat of the MVP award in the mid-80s, like, that's legendary status, Larry Legend, um, right there. And so, yeah, I, I think he's definitely, like, that whole rivalry with Magic, one of the great rivalries in NBA history, um, potentially the best. Um, and, yeah, like you said, his career was not quite as long as some of these other guys, which kind of knocks him down a bit but overall with how good he was um in his peak during those three years 84 85 86 um i think he had to be at number two with how influential he was for the game and also like you said there were a lot of other really good teams playing while while he was playing and so the fact that he was still able to um to win the championships that he did in the MVPs that he did is very impressive. Absolutely. And um, yeah, I had mentioned the three MVPs, but not that they were back to back. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, And just to go back to Kevin Durant one more time, I know that you had said like, he'd probably go up on your list as he racks up more stats. Um, But I want to clarify that with him being, um, next below Larry Bird on mine, he would have to do something incredibly impressive to move up on mine. Um, So much so that I feel confident saying I don't see it happening in his career. Um, Like, I know you had mentioned, like, be the guy on a championship winning team. I would need to see that at least, like, two times. Um, And, frankly, I need him to not just be the guy but like kind of be the only guy um like low key just do it with the nets yeah um like and before i before i get any comments on our social at mike and dave pod uh about larry bird having good teammates like kevin McHale, um etc like i'm not saying that larry bird did it alone but what i'm saying is what kevin durant has to do now is erase the fact that he left or like not erase, but you know what I mean? Like kind of counterbalance the fact that he left OKC to be carried. And now instead of finding new superstar teammates, um, just be where you are and win where your next best teammate isn't even an all-star. Like I need to see that. Show me that you can do that or you're never passing Larry Bird. I feel confident with two and one and uh, like cemented right now. For sure. And speaking of number one, it had to be Dominic Wilkins. <laughs> Go Hawks. No, it had to be LeBron. Um, no shockers here. Even Mike, who like, I will say this about Mike, right? When I first started getting into basketball, which Mike's also one of the big reasons why I actually got into basketball in the first place. Um, so shout out to him for that. Uh, he hated LeBron. Like LeBron was his least favorite player. He like literally praising LeBron in any way was liable to get a reaction out of him. Um, he has since cooled down on that a bit. Uh, and I'll let him talk about that some, 
Um, I have always been a guy who has just kind of looked at at him objectively. And I think that there are a lot of very, very strong opinions about LeBron in the basketball community. I would not say that I have, that I am one of those people who has a very strong opinion other than the fact that he is one of the greatest players of all time, undisputed, like unquestioned. And he is the best small forward of all time, unquestioned. I mean, whether you want to talk about championships, you want to talk about impact, you want to talk about uh, counting stats, peak, like you name it, he checks all of the boxes. Um, Four-time NBA champion, four-time finals MVP, four-time MVP, 18-time All-Star. He also, I think people forget about this, five-time All-Defensive First Team selection. Of course, that was more towards the beginning of his career, (laughs) not not the end. But still, you got to give him some credit for that. Um, Rookie of the year, obviously. Like, and the fact is, he's going to pass Kareem for the most points scored of all, like all time this season. And I think that just speaks to a the quality of the player and B the longevity of the player. We didn't even really see any injuries from him or any kind of extended missed time since he went to like, since before he went to the Lakers, since he's been to LA, like it's been, he's actually shown some signs of mortality. But uh, before that, it was like you, he was going to play basically every single game. Uh, And as far as just an athlete goes, he might just be like the best athlete. Like, we've seen in like the major professional sports like ever. Um, And there's not really too much that he can't do well. And I don't see any reason why he can't still be an effective player until he, whenever he decides to retire, as long as it's not like a, like we're getting into the like mid forties or something, but just the fact like his IQ, um, the way that he takes care of his body, all of that. Like, I don't see why he can't continue to pile on the stats if he wants to, to keep playing. So overall, like I have a ton of respect for how good he is. Obviously like the natural ability is one thing, but I think he has worked really, really hard to get where he is. And um, some of the off court things aside and like the decision and all of those things have kind of made him controversial in a lot of ways but if you're just looking at the quality of basketball player like there's definitely an argument for the fact that there's been no one better so huh. yeah yes to everything you said the end um yeah i i'm still well, I'm not ready to call him the best NBA player ever, and um, I I am easily ready to call him the best small forward ever. Uh, the longevity it's there, uh, and not just it's not just that he's been good for so long; it's that he's been great every year of his career. Uh, there's a reason he's been in the same like like people have been mentioning will he pass Jordan basically since he was 17 years old, right? And What's wild is, like, think about it this way, right? You're 17. You're just 
going to math class or whatever the hell, right? You got a biology test later, and then you're going to go dunk on some kids from down the street in your high school game. Meanwhile, ESPN is showing up and putting you on uh, internet pages all across the country saying this kid is going to be the next Michael Jordan. And like that is the expectation for LeBron as no a pressure. 17 year old kid. Yeah, no pressure. And like, honestly, how do you not fail at that? Like when they're saying you will be the best player ever, what has he, has he not lived up to that? Cause he's going to be the second best player ever. Probably like, and that's putting pressure on a 17 year old kid. And this isn't the stuff that makes him a great basketball player, but respect to him. Like, one thing that I have given him way more credit over or given him way more credit for over the past, I'd say like five, six years is like, if you're a kid now, like what better role model is there? Like short of like the decision, he's never really in the media for bad things. It It's always like, I mean, you're married to the same uh, same person, no extramarital affairs, like great father to all your kids, um, always doing the right thing, philanthropy out the wazoo, like all the all the while balling, taking great care of yourself, spending millions of dollars on your body every year. Good Lord. Um, I mean, he and, can afford it, not to yeah, mention all the business acumen that this guy has. Yeah. Showing up in uh, in media, like he was in train wreck and everything. He's in commercials all, all over. And this is the kid from Akron. Like he's the American dream, but anyway. So all of that being said, power to him. the the main thing I don't like was the decision. And when you got into basketball, the decision was very fresh, right? He was still in Miami at the time. Um, excuse me. Um, since then, he get he has gotten harder and harder not to like. Do I love everything he does? No, of course not. But I don't love everything that most players do. Uh, at age 36, his dunks, his his head is still above the rim. Um, even like this year, he's averaging 25, 6, and 9. Um, like what? I mean, we talked, we've talked in the past about like Vince Carter hanging around and like still being able to dunk in warm-up lines at age 42. But like, Vince didn't look like this at 36, you know? Um, and, I mean, that's that's what he's doing now. His worst scoring year of his career was his rookie year when he scored 20.9 on what would have otherwise been the worst team in basketball and what was the worst team in basketball for the four years he was gone in Miami. Um since then, he hasn't failed to score under 25 in a season. Like, all the while being, I mean, we started this list with the prototypical point forward. Well, I guess you made the argument for Havlicek. But LeBron James is the point forward. Um, really, I mean, it's, at, at a certain level, like, we can't say enough, right? But we also can't go on all day and i don't think this has come up yet yes he will pass kareem he's also currently seventh in all um seventh all time in career assists and 
he'll be up there in steals and blocks and rebounds as well, actually. Rebounds relative to, you know, not being seven foot tall. But, yeah. So, sorry to anyone that was uh, hoping for a shocker here, but no, LeBron is the best small forward to ever play. Yeah, one last thing about LeBron. He made the finals eight years in a row. It, I mean, especially like when I was really getting into basketball, like you said, LeBron just went to the finals. Whatever team he was on went to the finals. Like that was like how the NBA worked. And just, sure, maybe he should have won more championships, right? Like that's one knock when you're comparing him versus MJ. But like just the sheer consistency is almost like unmatched um, in in the modern NBA. So definitely, obviously like shout out to LeBron. Um, Very, very easy choice for number one on our small forwards list. Um, So to recap, uh, I had Kevin Durant, number five, Julius Irving, four, John Havlicek, three, Larry Bird, two, and LeBron, one. And then I had Scotty Pippen, five. Julius Irving, four, Kevin Durant, three, Larry Bird, two, and LeBron, one. So only one player was different, and we did have three of the five guys in the same slots. Um, But still a little variance. Uh, I'm curious to see how that will continue with the shooting guards and point guards for sure. But that's going to wrap up our top five small forwards of all time. And when we come back, we're going to get into uh, breaking down some of the matchups from Rivalry Weekend, what to look for in the conference championship games this weekend, and then also um, looking forward to the college football playoff. So stick around for that. All right, we're back, and it's time to talk about college football because we're just a few weeks away from the college football playoffs. And... The newest edition of the rankings came out today. So, after this past week's games, we've got... Eh, I'm going to do the top nine. We won't talk about all nine of these, but this is where it stops being 10 and 2, basically. From 1 to 9, we have UGA, Michigan, and TCU, our three undefeated teams. Yeah, you know what that means about Michigan. We'll talk about that later. USC... Ohio State at 11-1. Yeah, you know what that means. We'll talk about that later. Then Alabama, Tennessee, Penn State, and Clemson all at 10-2. and two. So, Dave, hmm, where do we start with all this? I mean, I guess, let me just say this. Right now, we have three undefeated teams. Barring slip-ups, those should be locks to get into the playoffs. What where do you think the conversation goes for that fourth team? Well, I mean, to be honest with you, I think if any if all of the those four teams win their conference championship games, then they'll all make it in because there's no way that if USC wins, then they're like, oh wait, you know, actually a win over Utah is not as good as Ohio State not playing a game. So. <laughs> I think it really is like has come down to win and you're in for these other four teams. Um, 
Now, if they had put Ohio State at four and USC at five, then it really would have had to be a win and you're in type for USC. But realistically, like when you look at these conference championship games, the one for TCU could be pretty tough. Kansas State's had a surprisingly good season this year um, with Max Duggan at quarterback. 29 touchdowns, three interceptions, also a threat on the ground. He's been fantastic for him. Um, and then that game Friday night, <clears throat> so when you're potentially listening to this, um, USC versus Utah, and Utah's the team that gave USC their only loss earlier this year by one point um, on a two-point conversion. So both of those games, I think, could go either way. The The lines are um, USC by three or TCU by two and a half. I think that's probably pretty fair. Um, and then the rest of the games are pretty straightforward or should be Georgia versus LSU. Like I think if Georgia loses that game, they're probably still in. Um, but then you start getting into the whole Ohio state thing of the one loss. I think really, What's going to come down to is like if Georgia, TCU, if they get like absolutely destroyed in the conference championship games, then maybe Alabama has a chance. But realistically, for me, I think it's like it's it stops at number five, where I think Ohio State still has a chance if somebody really slips up, especially USC. Otherwise, I don't see any other team losing because like if TCU loses in the conference championship game to Kansas State that's not that bad of a loss um and they were undefeated for the whole season but it like for Michigan for instance I think honestly Michigan is probably in the best possible scenario out of any of these teams because they already beat Ohio State so let's say that they lose to Purdue in the Big Ten Championship game. Well, then they're 12-1. and one, And you can't really put Ohio State above them because Michigan just beat them. So the head-to-head doesn't work. You could potentially make the argument for some of these other teams that you could put Ohio State above them because their only loss was to Michigan, who is probably going to be in the, that top four. So it's, but at the end of the day, it also, it just comes down to each team that's favored to win their conference championship game just needs to do that. And if they do that, then they'll be in the playoff and there won't be quite as much drama. I'm glad you put it that way because around this time of the year, you know, that like a bunch of like a bunch of people are going to try and get, and they will get uh, plenty of like, they're going to put their headlines out there about why, you know, this year is going to be so complicated for the rankings and trying to overcomplicate and everything. But it really is that simple this year. Um, and it should be the most simple that it's ever been, really. Um, there shouldn't really be that many discussions, assuming these four teams win their championships. The USC one is the most complicated. The other three, uh, UGA, Michigan, TCU, the teams they're playing against, I, I'm not trying to jinx anything here. 
certainly not from Michigan. All I'm saying is they have all beaten better teams than their opponents this week. Um, I'm not saying Purdue is bad, but Ohio State is better and Penn State is better. Uh, Penn State's probably better. <laughs> um, looking at UGA, like LSU is not bad. Tennessee is better. Um, TCU. Yeah, like, oh, go ahead. Like <clears throat> for, for Georgia, I mean, LSU is coming off of that brutal loss to Texas A&M, who have been terrible this year, all things considered starting a freshman at QB and they just got embarrassed. And that basically took all of LSU's chances of getting into the playoff just like that. Even if they beat Georgia, there's no way they're getting in at this point. Um, So really how motivated are they going to be? Like, obviously they still want to win the SEC, but now that we have the playoff, like it just doesn't really hold as much weight. Yeah. And then, like, looking at, um, I mean, looking at UGA, first of all, like, oh, well, I was just going to say also TCU, uh, TCU, Kansas State looks good, but I would probably say Oklahoma State is better, uh, just to, like, finish that thought out. But, um, yeah, UGA, even if they do somehow lose to LSU, we all know that UGA is not a team that's going to get smoked, much less by LSU. Like, if UGA doesn't win that game, it's probably, like, by a last-second field goal or some shit. Like, so, I would just bear that in mind going into this week, that, like, UGA can lose and still make the playoffs because it wouldn't be a big loss, and they'd look at that, too. Like, worst-case scenario for UGA is dropping down to four. Mm-hmm. That's... And that, it's so like keep your expectations tempered there, I guess. Yeah. And like you were saying, it, sh- it should be pretty straightforward with these top four teams if they win, um, especially because USC actually gets to have revenge on Utah, who handed their only loss earlier in the season. So Ohio State could say like, yeah, we only lost that one game to like the team that's ranked number two or whatever. But USC can say, well, we lost to uh, Utah, who's ranked number eleven right now. But then we ended up beating them, and we won our conference. Like in my mind, USC's argument is a whole lot stronger. Um, not to mention the fact that they have the, arguably the Heisman front runner and Caleb Williams uh, at quarterback. So, like, yeah, I think USC's in a really good position. And really, if you're Ohio State, <laughs> it's like what you always say about Michigan: you got to win the game. And they didn't win it. And so really they're just, they just have to really hope that something goes terribly wrong for, uh, I mean, they realistically, they really have to be hoping that Utah can beat USC again. Uh, Cause that's, if that happens, then basically I think Ohio state's in. Um, otherwise it could get pretty tricky if T if TCU loses or Georgia loses by a lot. But like you said, I, I don't, really see that being the case and i mean without beating michigan ohio state's only two ranked wins are against penn state and notre dame i mean notre dame was like fifth in the country in week one when they beat them but now they're like 21st or something um so they don't really have a phenomenal resume to sit on either um and i mean 
just to be first of all holy cow it's so like nice to be on this side of that you gotta win the game at the end so nice to be on this side of it two years in a row uh this is only the second time or this is the first time since 99 and 2000 that michigan has won back-to-back years against ohio state so literally the first time that i've seen it um it's beautiful um but just to like add another layer i guess to Ohio State losing and why that loss against Michigan hurts so much. Our our Heisman candidate running back, the best player on our team, like bar none, two carries. Like we didn't like we beat them without our best player. I think if they lose a close one to us and Blake Corum goes berserk, it's one thing, but like we go in there and beat him with beat them with plans B and C instead of plan A in columbus like every way oh not to mention we won by like 22 points um like every way you slice it it looks bad for ohio state yeah and while we're talking about michigan like going into that game we were talking about how michigan is built to take the lead and then stay there to shorten the the game uh so Ohio State's high octane offense isn't <clears throat> able to get going, um, and you know, built on the ground game, et cetera, et cetera. And then Michigan comes out, and JJ McCarthy looks like he, he finally figured out how to be a, a you know lead a high octane passing offense. And I just could not believe my eyes with how many long touchdowns Michigan scored. Uh, now, like Blake Corum had ripped off some long runs and stuff uh, previously in the season, but like this was just kind of like out of nowhere from what we had come to expect from Michigan to how they performed. And realistically, they had to perform that way because they were missing Blake Corum, who you could argue is the, at least before the Ohio State game, was the most important player um, for his team than any other player in college football. How Blake Corum went was basically how Michigan went until this game. And the fact that Michigan was able to to beat Ohio State convincingly and have those explosive plays really bodes well for their chances, both in this conference championship game and in the college football playoff. I completely agree. And like, part of my concern with Michigan all year has been like, I mean, my fear basically got well amplified in the Illinois game because all year I've been thinking like, we're relying really heavily on quorum and it's great because he's balling, but like what happens when he's not balling or he's not playing or whatever and then he gets hurt and we almost lose to Illinois. <laughs> and I've been like, I don't know that McCarthy can, be the guy and just lead us to a win. Well, this was a great time to have that addressed. Um, it shows that there is another level that Michigan can reach, and there are multiple ways that we can win games, uh, which is phenomenal. Uh, and it makes it a lot harder. Let's say we have to play UGA. Like, now they can't just hard commit to stacking the box every play. Um, J.J. McCarthy has shown via Cornelius Johnson that like we can bust out long passes as well uh like and that's 
like we weren't fully healthy. Like we were missing receivers too. Um, but I think something else or someone else that deserves a lot of credit from that Michigan game is Donovan Edwards. Um, and I know we were texting about the game beforehand and I had said something like, um, if neither Blake Corum nor Donovan Edwards play, we probably don't have a chance. Um, well, Blake Corum is the best running back on either team. Donovan Edwards is next. Like, and this is special because at the beginning of this season on this podcast, I uh, said something to the opposite effect uh, that that Ohio State had more depth, and we uh, proved that to be opposite this weekend. Donovan Edwards, our backup running back, twenty-two carries, two hundred sixteen yards. That's good for almost ten yards a carry and two touchdowns. Like, um, that's an important rest or an important break for Blake Corum going into this championship weekend. For sure. And I think it does seem to be said, like, Ohio State was doing a good job at stopping the run for the first half. Almost all of that production from Edwards was in the second half. And a lot of those was on those two long runs that he had, um, which were very impressive to be sure. But like, that's another thing about Michigan's offensive line. They were just wearing them down, wearing them down. And then eventually when Ohio State just got too tired, uh, Donovan Edwards and the offensive line like took advantage and were able to seal the game with the run game, which has been their bread and butter, like we've been saying. So very, very impressive from them. Um, Purdue's next. I'm sure that Harbaugh is going to try to not let them look past this game, which I think is like, it's certainly a possibility um, after coming, especially coming off of a win like that versus Ohio state, getting back up for it against Purdue can, could be difficult. Whereas for Purdue, like this is their season Um, winning the big 10. Like this is as close to the national championship as they're going to get. So it's, it will be important for, for Michigan to, get back up for this game and make sure that they submit their place in the playoff with uh, a big 10 title. Now I want to talk about TCU a little bit as well, because I think they, they potentially are the most under the radar undefeated team going into the conference championship games that we've had in a very long time. Like the, the playoff committee don't seem to like they were super reluctant to put them in the top four until there were no other undefeated teams. Like no one ever seems to really be talking about them on. It's all talking about UGA or talking about Ohio state versus Michigan or Caleb Williams at USC. Like, and then there's just TCU just doing their thing. And it's not like TCU is um, not an exciting team. They just, for the most part have been able to tough out and win the close games, which is what you want really. <laughs> and then when it came to um, their final test before the conference championship game, they absolutely blew out Iowa state to be fair. Like they probably should have Iowa state's not good this year, but that was, it was a real statement performance. Like, all right, we'll, we'll blow out this team. Are you happy now? Um, and honestly, like their big three, have been so, so impressive this year. Um, I mentioned Max Duggan earlier, like he has played such a vital role for him um, in being able to control 
the ball not turning the ball over, um, being a little bit of a dual threat, and then um, Kendra Miller at running back over a thousand yards, sixteen touchdowns on the season. Like no one's talking about this guy, but he's had a phenomenal year. And then of course Quentin Johnston, who has unfortunately uh, been dealing with a few like nagging injuries, which have limited his production some. But for certain po- points of the season, he was looking like the best receiver in college football. Um, and if he can. Uh, get back to being fully healthy like watch out he could be a real difference maker so really TCU with with those three guys um, on the offensive end I think they have a good chance of, of once they get into the playoff assuming that they can knock off Kansas State like I think they have a chance of of competing with with Michigan with uh, Georgia as who I think probably right now are like the two favorites to meet in the uh, national championship game. Which by the way, what a revenge game that would be after Georgia knocked us out last year. But yeah, I mean, looking at TCU's schedule, like the part that gets me is, you know, I mentioned Ohio state having two good wins against ranked opponents. TCU has five, right? And four of those were on back-to-back-to-back-to-back weeks. I mean, Oklahoma, granted, I don't think Oklahoma's ranked now. Um, But at the time, 18, then 19 Kansas, then 8 Oklahoma State, then 17 Kansas State, who they'll beat again. Well, you know, who, I'm sorry, who they'll play again and I think will beat um, for a sixth ranked win. The one I didn't mention was when they played Texas a couple weeks ago. But, like, their resume is there, you know? Like... How they slip under the radar is beyond me. I guess that they're not SEC or Big Ten. Well, I think, if anything, like Georgia was expected to be good this year. Michigan was expected to be good. Um, everybody was really excited about USC with Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams. Uh, you know, obviously Ohio State, Alabama, all the SEC teams, like they always get a lot of the the hype. T, like no one was talking about TCU before the season. Mm-hmm. That was not even like m- mentioned in terms of potential championship contenders at the start of the season. And then they just kind of kept winning and then they just kept winning and then they won some more. And then it was eventually like, all right, th- they're not a fluke. This isn't just going to end up blowing up in their face at some point. And everybody just had to take them seriously. And so now they're, they've put themselves in a very, very good position to make the playoff and potentially make some noise. So definitely major credit goes to, um, to TCU uh, for honestly, like surprising everyone and um, Sonny Dykes, their, their head coach, like this is his, also, this is his first season as head coach of TCU also like that's not getting talked about either. Like who goes in their first season and is like, Oh wait, (laughs) let's just go undefeated. Especially um, where Gary Patterson was the coach for TCU for many, many years. The expectations were probably not that high for Dykes coming in after he spent a few years at SMU. Now, He's like, nope, I got this. 
we're we're just going to go unbeaten. Like it was very very impressive all around for him. So, um, I mean, I personally have somewhat of a stake in both Michigan and Georgia, um, but like if I was a neutral, I would definitely be pulling for TCU in this because I feel like they've they haven't gotten the respect that they've deserved. Oh yeah. Um, like hundred percent agree with that. Um, and also just while we're talking about college football, just shout out to South Carolina real quick. The spoiler of seasons beating Tennessee and Clemson in back to back weeks. Um, I don't know. I just think that's worth that shout. Cause Tennessee was five at the time. Clemson eight at the time. And I mean, putting up 63 on Tennessee, goodness gracious. Uh, yeah. Spencer Rattler, man. Yeah, and honestly, like, it's been a while since South Carolina has been relevant. I could probably go so far as saying, and really, I think for, for this team, it's it's a step in the right direction of getting back into the conversation in the SEC. Um and, you know, Spencer Rattler, things didn't really work out for him at Oklahoma, transferred to South Carolina, and we were all like, why? Like, why did you choose South Carolina over any of these other destinations? That doesn't make sense. And he did not have a great start to the season, but the past few games, he has been lighting it up. Like, he's arguably been the hottest quarterback in the country over the last few games. So um, yeah, definitely shout out to South Carolina for sure on that one. Um, and then also I wanted to uh, t- touch on USC a little bit. And th- then I think we can probably wrap it up. Um, Caleb Williams, I mentioned before is probably the Heisman front runner. I was talking about Max Duggins um, touchdown to interception ratio. Well, Caleb Williams actually has him beat 34 touchdowns, three interceptions on the season, 3,700 yards. He's completing 66% of his passes, averaging nine yards per attempt. Um, He has been very, very good. Also a dual threat. He's got 10 touchdowns on the ground as well. Like this guy has been playing out of his mind, obviously followed Lincoln Riley to USC and has been probably the best player in college football week week in week out. And I think it would be really fun if they got a chance to be in the college football playoff. So he could show on a, um, you know, national stage, what he can do, especially because I think those PAC 12 teams, a lot of the time, because they're on the West coast, a lot of people, a lot of people just don't stay up late to watch those games. Like I remember this being the case with McCaffrey when he was absolutely balling out at Stanford and like nobody was talking about it because no one was watching the Stanford games because they started at like 10 o'clock. <laughs> um, so Caleb Williams, I think a lot of people like recognize the name because he was at Oklahoma and moved with Lincoln Riley and stuff. And obviously USC is a bigger name program than Stanford is, but still having the chance to bought on like the national stage, um, cement his Heisman candidacy, like, I would like to see that too. I think these top four teams are all really, really interesting. We're getting to the business end folks. Uh, Hopefully 
y'all are excited just like we are. And that'll wrap up this segment. Um, and when we come back, we're going to get into the hot seat and the fun fact as always. So make sure to stick around for those. All right, we're back and it's time to get into this episode's edition of the hot seat. We had a few candidates this week, but we ultimately settled on the New York Jets. Now, you might be wondering, but guys, on the last episode, y'all were talking about the good things the Jets are doing and how they've been impressive this season and blah, 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 blah. So how, in two weeks' time, are they now on the hot seat? That's a great question. Um, don't doubt us. We're always right. Uh, yeah, Unless it's one of those episodes where we're doing our you know, tier list review. But Dave, why don't you address why it is that the Jets are on the hot seat and why Zach Wilson, I'm going to, I'm just bringing him up. I can't remember. Someone find it for us. Is this his first time or second time on the hot seat? I want to know someone else do the work for me. Yeah. Well, so the Jets have overperformed this season to expectations primarily because of their defense under Robert Sala. It has been excellent. Um, and they have experienced mediocre to subpar to catastrophic quarterback play, uh, depending on the week and the quarterback in question so far this season. Uh, Zach Wilson, after they got absolutely smoked um, versus the Patriots, well, they didn't get smoked. The offense did by the Patriots defense. Um and Zach Wilson had like 70 yards passing or something like that. Yeah, 77 yards passing in the game. They didn't score a touchdown. And after the game, he was asked about, you know, his performance or whatever. And if that had any impact on the game or like on them not winning the game. And he was like, nah, like he wasn't taking any blame for the loss, even though literally the defense allowed three points and the special teams allowed the seven that ended up getting the Patriots to win. And so obviously that's not going over well with his teammates because he's supposed to, like he was the number two pick in the draft. He's supposed to be the franchise quarterback, uh, which means not just that you perform off the field or on the field, but also means that you perform off the field. And so far as Zach Wilson has <laughs> has a better track record of performing in the bedroom than he does at press conferences. So for what that's worth. Um, so anyway, so all of that was going on with Zach Wilson and he ended up getting benched after the Patriots game. He ended up coming out and like apologizing to his team and stuff about his comments, which like, to be fair, good, good for him. How, I mean, it shouldn't have been necessary in the first place. But so instead cult hero for the jets, Mike white, who jets fans have been like screaming for since he had a couple of good games for them back a couple years ago or something. Um, they, they finally give him a chance against the bears. And what does Mike white do, but play extraordinarily well, 
22 of 28 for 315 yards passing and three touchdowns, no turnovers. Like, he played extremely, at an extremely high level. The Jets scored 31 points, blew out the Bears. So, at this point, it's got to be pretty simple, right? Mike White is going to start not just next game, but for the rest of the season. Because in one game, he showed way more than Zach Wilson has shown in all of Zach Wilson's previous starts. Nope. Robert Sala decides, like, he he doesn't want to name the starter yet. Like, what more do you have to see? Like, Mike White got in that shootout last year. I can't remember who they were playing against. Uh, but he had thrown, like, five touchdowns in a game or something like that. Uh and then they go back to Zach Wilson again, seeing the same thing this year. Like, it's like the most Jets thing ever. It's like, oh, we stumbled upon a good quarterback. Nah, it's it's an illusion, like a mirage. You know, we're stumbling through the Zach Wilson desert, and Mike White is but a mirage of a Coca-Cola vending machine. <laughs> In, instead of the oasis that he actually hits. Yeah, they don't realize that it's actually this beautiful roaring fountain that they, they sip water from. And they're like, okay, well, that was nice, but really we're just imagining it. What we really need is this more of this desert cactus or whatever. And then Joe Flacco is like <laughs> the camel <laughs> who's over the hump, if you know what I mean. And it's not even it's their camel. There. It's a camel that they like found in the desert. <laughs> so they didn't even get like the de- the camel in its youth, its prime, if you will. Soul. Exactly. Yeah. Um, for whatever that whole metaphor <laughs> was worth, I don't know exactly, but y'all get the point. The Jets are going to, um, the Jets are going to jet. Uh, and, We'll see. I mean, I would be shocked if they don't have Mike White actually start. But just go ahead and put your faith in in the quarterback who's actually performing for you. You're in a position which where you can actually potentially compete for the division and make the playoffs for the first time in God knows how long. Like, I don't understand that. Maybe they just want. Maybe they're just trying to protect Zach Wilson's like confidence. Uh, or something and make him think that he has a chance before they shut him down. I, I don't know. Uh, but so far it's, it's not a great look all around for the quarterback situation for the jets quarterback situation. Uh, you know, I almost made this the off the top instead of the world cup, but I didn't because, you know, I knew that we were doing this for the, for the hot seat but it's very much like the it's made me think of like the sunk cost fallacy you know where it's like oh well i've devoted this much energy or resources or whatever into this strategy therefore this strategy needs to freaking work even though like you're past the point of it being worth it i was gonna literally ask you about this applying to zach wilson like they use the number two pick on him and there's so they're like Oh no, it needs to be Zach Wilson. But then they have Mike White right here. 
like at what point do you just say like sorry zach wilson it didn't work out i think while you still have him on the rookie contract like there's no reason to give up on him i think he still has a lot of growing up to do though and he can potentially learn while like on the practice field and learn from Flacco and all that. <laughs> like it would be one thing if the jets were, uh, you know, firmly in last in the AFC East had no chance for the playoffs, but now you, you, you just need to put the quarterback out there who you think gives you the best chance to win on a weekly basis. And right now that's, that's not Zach Wilson. So. And frankly, it doesn't do him any favors to be coddled. Like, like, oh yeah, we'll start you no matter what. Huh. Start the better man. But I think that's going to wrap up the hot seat. Now, try as I might, I'm not coming up with the best transition this week. I don't know. Something about like not having to bench because of poor performance. I don't know. Whatever. Dave's fun fact. It's late. We've been at this for a little while. It's it's definitely understandable. And yet somehow unforgivable. Where's my transition, bro? I'm just kidding. Um, damn. <laughs> well, damn. <laughs> Anyways. The, the, evidently, the Jets coaching is more forgiving than Dave. <laughs> Apparently. Um So, all that aside, my fun fact of the episode, we're, ta- we're going to talk about Galileo. Yes, the guy who was like the astro- like super early astronomer or whatever. That part's not important. <laughs> what is important about him is that his finger is on display at a museum in Florence, Italy. Yes, his actual freaking finger. So this guy, Galileo, died in like the 1700s or whatever. I'm just I'm just reading out this story like <laughs> I'm assuming it's true because it's from NASA's website. Um so Apparently, Galileo's finger was detached from his body by some guy when his remains were transferred from a small closet to the main body of a church. Which, like, why was this dude's remains just chilling in a closet? (laughs) Like, wasn't this guy an extremely important person in that age, I mean, he is now too, but like that confused me. Taking um, the phrase skeletons in your closet to a whole new level. <laughs> that is certainly true. Um, and why take the finger? Like, I that's not explained in this article, so I don't really understand. Um, subsequently, the finger was acquired by Angelo M. Bandini, who is a librarian of the Biblioteca Lorenziana or something. So this is some library in Italy and was exhibited for a long period. Then in 1841, it was moved again 
to where it currently is, which is the Museo di Storia del Ciencia. So I think it's like a science museum, basically is what that means, um, in Florence, Italy. And this is what the museum says about uh, the finger. The finger exemplifies the celebration of Galileo as a hero and martyr of science. I'm not sure exactly that that's the case. I feel like doing like a statue or like a lot of like plaques or something would probably do a better job of exemplifying and celebrating him than just having this dude's crusty old finger in a case at this museum. It's just a little weird. This whole thing is just, it's just very strange. Okay, here's my response to that story. What? So, you got Galileo's finger. I know Van Gogh cut his ear off. So what if, so can we like put those in the same like exhibit? Can we like, are there like more like severed? Like now collecting artist extremities. Yeah, like we just make one like coagulant person like out of well this is Galileo's finger and that's it's like uh, that sounds disgusting but also just the the finger being on display is also kind of gross so for what that's worth I mean like I'm looking at my own finger and like I know I'm not Galileo but like it's it's a finger it's not that interesting like oh and Sorry, everyone. Ha- well, uh, most people have fingers, and th- they're largely not spectacular or exceptional. You know, it's yeah. It's it's not like he was the best Rubik's cube solver in the world or something. Like then maybe, or like piano player or something. Like maybe then I could potentially see where they were coming from. Yeah, but. In this case, it it just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It's like, cool, bro. Like, nice finger, question mark. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, and just the detachment of it in the first place. Like, why, like, on whose authority did this guy do this in the first place? Was he just like, ah, did it just like accidentally like snap off when they were transporting the body? And he was just like, well, we could put this on display in a library <laughs> like i don't anyways <laughs> who's gonna notice but if they ever make another night at the museum movie i want this to be a plot point just the finger itself is just animated it's just like um, animatronically crawling away like on like a worm <laughs> and it's like one of those like easter eggs that like no one <laughs> but uh but us and our listeners yeah. actually understand <laughs> um so Anyway, that's going to wrap up our fun fact for this week. Um, a bit of an interesting one. Uh, I can't quite put my finger on it, but... Um, if you're listening, use your fingers to like and subscribe and leave five-star ratings. Uh, follow us on social media at, at Mike and Dave Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You have saved the fact that you were unable to transition into it by the fact that you were able to transition out of it. So well done.
do what I can, you know? Yeah, for sure. But yeah, thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed our top five segment as well as um, our uh, discussion about college football and um, who's going to make the playoff. Um, look, definitely looking forward to these next few weeks of college football and um, probably breaking that down on the podcast some more. So uh, for more college football content, like Mike said, make sure you subscribe to us and reach out on social media and you can discuss with us um, as these games are going on. But I think that's it from us. As always, this has been Mike. This has been Dave, and you've been listening to the Mike and Dave Podcast. 